0: Here and there, I use expressions that aren't found in most of our translations. I'll explain them when we get to them. Again, it will be like, now that's the kingdom of heaven will be like. All of these are parables of the kingdom. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned I would have received it back with interest. Take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For those who have will be given more, and they will have an abundance. As for those who do not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now there are many points of interest in this parable. Let me work through briefly the parable itself so that we're all on the same page on the cultural overtones of this or that. And then I'll offer some reflections on the parable <coughs> before we press on to the next one. To make sense of this parable, there are certain cultural things that have to be understood. First, the word used for servant in most of our English Bibles really has to be rendered slave. loss really can't be understood in any other way. And in this case, it makes all the difference in the world. I don't think that you can make sense of this parable unless you realize that these people are slaves. Now, I'll explain that a bit farther on, but from now on, when I read the relevant texts, I'll put in the word slave, not servant. The master does not say, in other words, well done, good and faithful servant. He says, well done, good and faithful slave it makes a huge difference to our understanding of the entire parable and especially the response of the master to the third slave. Second we also have to remember that in the ancient world there were quite different associations with slavery to our world. In the American experiment of slavery initially all blacks and only blacks were slaves and all of them became slaves initially by raiding parties in West Africa or by buying from other Africans who had themselves engaged in raiding in West Africa and then sold them to the white men on the boats and they were brought then across the Atlantic. That means therefore that slavery was um, in the popular mind in the West both by blacks and whites uh, connected with blackness and the slavery inevitably was not only racially identified but it was uh, a signal that the person was doing menial work without educational advantages uh, and the like whereas people in the ancient world um, could easily become slaves all right but not only from raiding parties they could become slaves because there was no chapter eleven or chapter thirteen that is bankruptcy protection laws you borrow some money then the, the economy falls in bad times, your business goes belly up, and you have no recourse but to sell yourself and perhaps also your family into slavery. That is the way things worked. And with this was the fact then that slavery was not connected with one particular group. There were Italian free men and there were Italian slaves. There were African free men and there were uh, African slaves. There was African nobility, African slavery. There were Englishmen who were slaves and there were Englishmen who were nobility and Englishmen who were common peasants and the same with Germans and with Jews and with everybody else. So slavery was not aligned with a particular race. And it was not necessarily aligned either with having been uh, attacked and and defeated in war or being the victim of a raiding party or the like. It might simply have meant horrendous uh, economic bad times. That's all. And that also meant that some slaves then were not engaged in menial tasks. Many were, of course. Roman slavery could be very, very brutal. Um, but on the other hand, um, you, you might have been a skilled artisan with quite a lot of money, and quite a lot of skill who borrowed some money to start a business and then the whole thing goes belly up and you become a slave. In which case you might be used by your master um, to run the household, keep the books, instruct the children, whatever. In other words, being a slave did not necessarily relegate you to the lowest social order. Um, of, of workmanship or reading or skills or the like um, you, 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 you could be vested with all kinds of training do, 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 do you see and uh, some of our associations therefore of slavery have to be banished from our mind for us to begin to make sense of what is here in the text note too in the third place that once again this parable harks back to previous things So, after a long time, verse 19, the master of those servants returned. So it harks back, you see, once again, to the fact that it is a time you don't expect after the potential for a long delay, which we found in the previous paragraph. Each one of the the parables harks back and develops something that was already there in what was uh, uh, found in the previous uh, set of uh, Pericobe. Now, all this by way of background. Then, fourth... When he calls his servants to him and entrusts his wealth to them, he gives five bags of gold, two bags of gold, one bag of gold, or a talenton. This is regularly called the parable of the talents. But today that's woefully misleading, of course. When we think of talents, we think of the ability to do a lot of mathematics in your head or play the violin or some, something like that. We think of it as a very personal thing. But a, palin, a talenton is in fact a unit of weight of money. That's what it is. Uh, the early NIVs um, explained in a footnote more than $1,000, which was a woeful miscalculation. Uh, a, a, a weight of, of a talenton, if it was silver, was the equivalent of 6,000 denarii. Now, denarius, as you know, was the payment for a blue-collar day laborer. So, what is six thousand denarii in contemporary terms for a working man for about 20 years? Um, you add it all up, depending on how much they earn, um, eight hundred thousand dollars maybe with a skilled labor, a million dollars. I mean, it's quite a lot of money, in other words. And that's assuming that the weight is of silver. If it's a weight of gold, it is a fantastic amount of money. Millions and millions and millions of dollars, do you see? So more than $1,000, well, yes, it was more than $1,000, but quite a lot more than $1,000, if you see. And it becomes important a little farther on to realize just how much money this is. I'm not merely picking up on a picky point for uh, people in ancient, uh, interested in ancient weights and measures. It becomes crucial for the understanding of the parable a little farther on. So he distributes, and that's why the TNIV offers here bags of gold rather than talents. Uh, whether it was gold or silver we can't quite be sure but it's it's a unit of weight of of, of valuable silver or gold and probably gold in the context makes more sense, we'll see. This according to the master's assessment of the ability of each that is it is recognized that different people have different uh, gifts and the master therefore distributes his wealth accordingly then he goes on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. Now there was no stock exchange in those days. This does not mean that he invested it in some place where the money would merely accrue. Um, To put the money to work means that he had to buy into a business or rent a farm, or buy a boat, start a fishing business, support some artisans and take a cut, or whatever. He had to put it to work and then supervise the work and so on. So, with this amount of money, that's a lot of work. You have to buy a lot of businesses to handle five bags of gold, you see, and dispense this money accordingly. But he works away at it, he works away at it, he does it immediately, he doesn't delay, right off, he does it, he's a slave and he, he's been charged with this responsibility. So this first slave takes the money and he, he works it, he works it, he invests it, he works it, and in due course he gains five bags more. So also the second slave with two bags, he gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So far then, this is uh, pretty straightforward. After a long time, on which I've already commented, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. You can almost hear a certain element of grateful pride in the whole thing. You trusted me with this much? I'm delighted to tell you I've doubled it. Here, this is yours. And the master himself replies, Well done, good and faithful slave. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now there are two points in all of this that are well worth reflecting on. You have been faithful over a few things, millions and millions and millions And millions? (laughs) But compared with the riches to come, it's just a loose change. That's all. And now I'm going to give you so much more to do and so much more responsibility. I mentioned earlier that in the Bible as a whole, there are many different pictures of the final bliss, of the final state the new heaven and the new earth. It's not all sitting on clouds, even if we get rid of our harps and choose banjos instead. Rather, there's work, there's responsibility, there is uh, growth, there is uh, incredible endeavor. But now in a mode in which we don't get tired, where we don't fail, where we serve the Master with gladness, where it's a privilege, I'm sure it'll be very challenging. I'm sure there will be all kinds of things we don't know and have to learn. It will be a wonderful time of... I see no reason why we should think it will be static. And all the things that you may or may not, by God's grace, accomplish here with the bags of gold he gives you are loose change compared to what will be done there. Which which can be summarized in a more Pauline expression. If we suffer, suffer with him, we will also reign with him. I have no idea what the ordering of these things will be in the new heaven and the new earth. But you, you have to see that there is a huge step up beyond calculation. It's, it's not that you, it was $10 million and now it will be fifteen. It was loose change compared with huge wealth. But the loose change itself is so wonderful that you, you are meant to find your imagination absolutely staggered when you think about what the master is promising here. And then, no less staggering, the master comes back and says to the slave, Come and share your master's happiness. Now, that's just not the way masters spoke in the ancient world under any system of slavery. The, the slaves existed precisely to support the master in his happiness. He arrives back and he should say, Run the bath for me, and fetch clean clothes, and make sure you do the laundry, and horse and chariot are outside, and make sure you clean them up, and so on. But what he does is come back and say, Come and share your master's happiness. This is the happiness outside of the parabolic world of the Lord Jesus Christ with his heavenly Father forever. This is shades and overtones of John 17, of enjoying the very love and the Godhead on the last day. Do you see? This is a relational splendor that is bound up with the pleasure of God. So in this sense, it is breaking down all expectations of the social intercourse of slavery in the first century. Then the second man arrives with two bags of gold. He had received less, he was entrusted with less, but was no less fruitful. That is, he doubled his resources too, and receives exactly the same encomium word for word. Then, finally, the man with one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is here what belongs to you. Now this is a really interesting comment. The, ma- the, the serpent is saying, the slave is saying, the wicked slave is saying in effect that the master is exploitative, grasping, using the labor of others for his own gain. In fact, perhaps even putting the slave into an invidious position. If then the slave is successful, none of the money becomes the slaves. It becomes the masters. He might really work hard and he might double the money, but at the end of the day all that does is make the master rich. On the other hand, he might invest the money, the economy might uh, go belly up, he loses it all, and the master will in some sense hold him responsible. This this is a a no-win situation. And, and, And at a certain level, we in the Western world are going to be tempted to have a certain sympathy with this chap because we're not thinking slavery, we're thinking union rules. In union rules, you can always withdraw your work and in union rules you expect the workers to to share in some way in the fruitfulness of the enterprise if the economy is going well and the company's got fat profits then mm, yes the union does expect uh, increases in pay and benefits and so on so on so on And, 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 and so therefore the workers enjoy something of the fruits of their own labor directly or indirectly but this is not union rules this is slavery rules By this, Jesus is no more endorsing slavery than earlier on when he depicted his coming like a thief in the night. He was endorsing theft. It's merely an analogy drawn from the social structures of the day to make a certain kind of point. And in that point, um, in this particular instance, we are more like slaves than than union rule workers. Christians are either slaves to sin in the New Testament or they're slaves to God. In fact, in Paul, one of the most common metaphors for genuine heart devotion to Christ is that we are slaves to Christ. And if we're not slaves to Christ, the only alternative is not being free. It's being slaves to sin and to self, do you see? So we have to think here, not union rules, but slavery rules. Under slavery terms, this answer was unforgivable because... The the slave had no choice in this matter. He couldn't withdraw his labor. He was defying his master. He was actually inviting uh, execution. For for this level of disobedience, he could have been tortured, he he could have been pummeled, he could have been sold off, he could have actually been killed. Do you you see? He is actually acting in a massive defiance of the man who actually owns him. And that's why the master here is so enraged. You wicked, lazy servant. In other words, he pierces behind the ostensible motives of lack of fair play to the man's wickedness and laziness and the evidence for it he sees in a particular line. So, you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then, at very least, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. That is, if all you were afraid of is that you might be exploited then you should have done at least this but your failure to do at least this shows that you hold me in contempt it shows that you do not acknowledge your condition as a slave it shows that you are hiding behind your own laziness and and wickedness and putting up front some vain excuse about my exploitative nature Do do, do you see so that instead of coming out on top as your other two fellow slaves did now you will be consigned to the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And once again, we pick up lines that we found in Matthew 10. Take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For those who have will be given more. So in the context of understanding parables in Matthew chapter uh, 13, rather, not 10, Matthew chapter 13, Um, those who have some measure of understanding will be given more, more explanation, more understanding of what's going on in the kingdom. And those who have nothing, what little they have will be taken away from them. And so it is here with respect to the talents, that is the talent on the unit of weight, the measure of treasure that has been given to this person. So let me reflect a little bit on the nature of this parable for us. What does this parable teach us about how to wait compared with the other three? The first emphases. The first, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who do not wish to be surprised by the Master's return. The second, wait for the Lord Jesus as stewards who must give an account of their service, faithful or otherwise. The third, wait for the Lord Jesus as those who know the Master's coming may be long delayed. Here, Wait for the Lord Jesus as slaves commissioned to improve their master's assets. Wait for the Lord Jesus as slaves commissioned to improve their master's assets. It's not just faithfulness, though that's presupposed. It's not just a long delay, though that's presupposed. It's not just a sudden return, though that's presupposed. The story makes no sense without all those three. But something additional, namely, waiting in such a way that you improve your master's assets while you're away while he's away you're his slave and he's given you stuff to do to improve his assets so second presuppose in the parable is that Jesus followers his slaves joyfully recognize their roles and status as slaves under Jesus Lordship otherwise if you refuse to acknowledge that rule, you end up with a third slave, making excuses, resenting Jesus all the time. Number three, the foolish virgins failed from thinking their job, their part was too easy. The wicked servant here, the wicked slave, fails from thinking his part is too hard. Last, our waiting here for Jesus' return... Is never merely passive. We have an ab- ob- obligation to improve the master's assets. And this introduces notions about the kingdom, you see, that are really startlingly new in certain respects. New as compared with what was expected by those first century Jews who just thought the kingdom would come with a bang and then it was all over. Um, this really does barrel out of Old Testament structures of thought that anticipate a suffering servant whose uh, final fruitful drawing in of the nations might take a lot longer than a whole lot of people from Old Testament times expected, but the roots are already there. And now they're coming together in a reordering of the Old Testament picture that anticipates a kind of slavery come blessed service that ultimately issues in, in being called and blessed by God to improve the master's assets even while we wait understanding that we're his, understanding that all he gives us is his, and now at the end of it, he blesses us, calls us good and faithful servants when he's enabled us, equipped us and so on, good and faithful slaves, and invites us to share in his happiness at the end.